Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, nerds. Welcome to episode 461 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today for uh, for this one. Today's episode is an interview I did with David Nichols about his new book, Sweet Sorrow. Uh, David Nichols is well known for his extremely popular bestseller, One Day and just a whole bunch of other stuff. But um, <laughs> I did this interview back in January, the before times. Um, I believe his book got pushed back a little bit, but um, I believe it's available now, August 4th. So there'll be a little bit of a delay, but we wanted to get this episode out. Um, but yeah, we had a really great conversation, um, again, back in January at the American Library Association. So. Uh, David is a wildly successful writer for TV and movies and also for his novels that people know and love. So great conversation. I think you guys are really, really going to like it. Um, so stick around. But before we do that, I want to give you guys a few updates on some really cool stuff that we're doing. Um, first, if you want to get a hold of us, you can go to professionalbooknerds.com. There you will find um, contact information for us, as well as some really good stuff. If you scroll down, there is a gallery uh, that scrolls through of images. Um, it's where you'll usually see like our 30 day book challenge that a lot of people love to do on Instagram. Uh, you'll also see the, uh, diversity bingo and the, uh, I believe it's called anti-racism, uh, bingo that, that Jill put together again for some social media stuff. A lot of people are really liking those. So, uh, that's where you can find the templates on those if you want to do them. Um, also, I'll put a link in the show notes for this, but we mentioned it on the end of Thursday's episode. Uh, but this coming Thursday, July 16th at 3 p.m. Eastern time, we are doing a virtual social uh, social justice conversation with Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel. Uh, they are the co-authors of the New York Times bestselling title, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. Uh, Kim did a video that went completely viral about a month ago um, discussing racial inequality and explaining uh, the frustration that African-Americans are feeling. And it's just, you know, there's a ton of stuff going on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's so much content out there that you can educate yourselves. But her video um, called How We Win, um, This Is How We Win, is probably the best thing I've seen. And like I said, it went crazy viral. She's all over the place. And so we're really excited. Um, I was lucky that I have a a friendship with Geely and Kim. So they agreed to do this. Uh, so there's a link in the show notes if you want to sign up. I'm recording this on Friday, um, and as of right now, there's um, a decent amount of registrations left, but they are going really fast. So I'll I'll update it on on uh, on social media. It looks like it's probably going to sell out. So if you hear this on Monday, I definitely look in the show notes, sign up for that, and then you'll get a, a link to go to it. Um, in addition to the conversation that Jill and I are going to have with Kim and Geely, there'll be a opportunity to type in questions that we'll moderate and ask them as well so a lot of great stuff there um and if you want to type in some questions ahead of time you can always do that too on twitter and instagram at probooknerds uh also if you want to go to shop.overdrive.com that's where we have our professional book nerds t-shirts uh, you can also find some really great libby and sora swag we've got tote bags 
Uh, we've got pop sockets, t-shirts, uh, stickers, coffee mugs, a whole bunch of great stuff. So it's really cool. And anything that you buy there, all profits go to supporting um, library funds and uh, library charities. So uh, just a really great thing that Overdrive was able to do. So I love promoting that as well. Um, okay, that's pretty much everything. Um, if you're interested in learning even more about what's going on in Overdrive, because there's never a dull day, you can go to blogs overdrive.com uh, that's where we update everything so uh yeah okay that is all of the housekeeping that i can think of for now um so i am going to let you get to this interview that i did way back in january with david nichols about his new title sweet sorrow on the professional book nerds podcast Hi everybody, it's Adam and I'm still sitting here at ALA in Philadelphia, in a rainy Philadelphia at the moment, and I am so honored to be sitting next to David Nichols, who is the internationally best-selling author, perhaps best known for writing Us in One Day. Uh, collectively, his novels have sold more than 8 million copies around the world and been published in over 40 languages. If that weren't enough, he is also an exceptionally talented screenwriter, having twice been nominated for the BAFTA and an Emmy. His new book, Sweet Sorrow, will be out in the U.S. this May and is out now in the U.K. David, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's very nice to be here. So we always love having our authors kind of kick off our conversation by talking about their new book. So can you introduce our listeners to Sweet Sorrow? Sure. Sweet Sorrow is my fifth novel. And uh, my other books had sort of been about love later in life. And I wanted to get back to this, the source, I suppose, and write about first love. <laughs> So it's a coming-of-age story mm-hmm. about first love set in the summer of 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about a guy called Charlie Lewis who's leaving school. He doesn't really know what he's going to do uh, with his future. He doesn't really have a vocation. And uh, the long summer is stretching ahead of him. And one afternoon, quite by chance, he meets this girl, Fran. And they get on really well, and he really wants to see her again. But he finds to his horror that she is playing the role of Juliet in an amateur production of Romeo and Juliet and this is going to take up all of her summer and the only way he can see her is to join the production so kind of against his will he joins this production of this Shakespeare play he doesn't think Shakespeare's for him he doesn't think it's it's even the English language you know, he thinks it's another language but uh, he joins and the, the, the novel is the story of that summer it's the story of their love affair it's the story of Charlie's troubled family life and it's all told in retrospect. I wanted to write a book about nostalgia and memory. So it's told from the present day from, from Charlie in his current situation, the situation which is informed by what happens over the course of that summer. I love that particular part of this because it's very common to find a first love novel. Those, come, yep, those are all over first. the place, but it is much, a lot more rare to see one looking back with perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, there is a tradition of it, I suppose. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful first, first love, uh, coming-of-age stories, but I think I wanted to tell it with a certain amount of distance and mm-hmm. wisdom, not right in the voice of a 17-year-old, but right in the voice of someone who's kind of haunted by this relationship mm-hmm. and the events of the summer and, and needs to unearth them, excavate them, to, before he can get on with his life. So it's, it's told with a certain amount of... You know, when we look back at that time of our lives, I think often there's a certain amount of embarrassment, uh, certainly a certain amount of humor, the, the ridiculous way in which we behave, yeah. the mistakes we make, but also um, a kind of sadness, I suppose, a regret, a pleasant melancholy. Mm-hmm. 
that it, which is kind of encapsulated in that title. Yeah. In the in the play, uh, the line is, "Parting is such sweet sorrow that I would say good night until it is morrow." Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that there's a pleasure in sadness, and that's what I try to get into the book. Well, and you mentioned looking back, looking back, you can do it with some humor because in the moment when you're 16, 17, 18 yeah. years old, and you're experiencing these emotions for the first time, they feel so big. And the idea, and I. I was a very emotional teenager, yeah. so this, this really hit home for me, but the idea of laughing at yourself in the moment when everything feels so yeah. big, yeah. it's impossible. But then when you do look back, yes, yeah. there's some embarrassment, but it is. It's, <laughs> it's something where when you look back, you be like, wow, that is actually pretty funny. It's, it's a way to laugh at yourself that you definitely would not have been able to at the moment. It's true. I think all your emotions are huge. I mean, it strikes me that most of the books I love, a lot of the music I still love, they were things that I discovered when I was 16, 17, 18. Yeah. You know, it's almost as if your your nerve endings are turned up a little higher than usual. And, and, and the same applies to emotions. First love in particular, you know, it's something that by definition only happens to you once and can be quite overwhelming. And adults have a tendency to look at it and think, and almost imagine it's a kind of... Um, you know, it's a phase. It's a kind of inoculation that you have to go through and then move on with your well, life. Well, isn't it what they say, the tragedy plus time equals comedy? Yeah. Like, it's, that's yeah. kind of, I mean, to a lesser <laughs> extent when it comes to relationships, it is very much for, it's like, again, I, I'm fortunate where um, my wife and I, our best friends are people that I grew up with yeah. and in high school, and my best friend's wife was my first girlfriend, so we have okay. this hilarious ability to look at our relationship when we were like 13 and 14 and now in our mid-30s we can laugh at it but I don't even know that I could have laughed at it in my early 20s like you have to have that you have to have you have to be incredibly well you just are incredibly earnest and passionate and intense and I wanted to write about that but with some with some comedy you know with some distance with some uh Ryanness and, and detachment and, and you, wisdom. Did it feel a little bit easier as you get further away from that time to write about it with nostalgia? Did, I guess, does your nostalgia for that time period grow as you get a little bit older? Or um, I certainly think about it more, but nostalgia is a slippery word, really, because it, it implies, I suppose, a fond feeling for the past, a sense mm-hmm. that things were better and more simple. And I don't feel that. It, the, I do think about it a lot, and I think about it with a huge amount of regret and sadness. You know, mm-hmm. I feel, speaking for myself here, not for the character, I, 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 I'm kind of saddened by a lot of the ways we were with each other at that age, mm-hmm. that we weren't a little nicer to each other, a little kinder. You know, it's quite a brutal time, yeah. I think. I have huge regrets about, uh, you know, family relationships at that time. So nostalgia is a difficult word. I suppose what I miss, if I miss anything, it's the scale of the emotions. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the kind of madness of it. But I also think it's a very difficult time. I didn't want to write a book. The, the key line in the book is, uh, is something that Charlie points out. The greatest lie the old tell about the young is that youth is somehow free of care. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time, it, 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 everything is life or death. It's massive. Yes. So, um, and often, you know, especially for young boys, I think, they don't necessarily reveal the confusion, the sadness, the loneliness that they feel at that time. It's hard for a young boy to, as someone who (laughs) did show his emotions, admittedly, it's hard to do that. It's the uh, misconception that you need to be steely-faced and you have to be one of the cool kids and understand, like, 
you know, these are the way that all the, like, nothing matters to us. It's all easy going. But in reality, you're feeling, like you said, these things for the first time. I, it is, it's such a, it's easy to look back, like we said, with rose-colored glasses, but also to be able to reflect on the things that weren't yeah. so great. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm curious, uh, I've seen a lot of people ask you if Charlie is you, which I know oh, is a yeah. very standard question yeah. to ask authors. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've seen you say that you're, you're very different people. Uh, how do you find a way to conjure up like nostalgia for a time and experience that wasn't yours in fact was actually maybe pretty different um i i suppose i cling to that idea that you know that it's it's all made up and it's all true that that you you change the uh, the mechanics of the story the charlie's background none of it's quite mine mm-hmm. but the emotions and the, the sensations the feelings that you have you hope have there's a kind of universality to mm-hmm. that so uh, I I don't find it hard to remember that time mm-hmm. uh, uh, or those feelings, and there are little moments that are autobiographical. I mean, the main difference between me and Charlie is I was one of the kids in the play, yeah, and I wasn't the outsider uh-huh. in that world. I loved doing that kind of stuff, right. and Charlie's very skeptical about it. But I think I can feel some empathy for Charlie's dynamic, you know, mm-hmm. his position, his yeah. attitude, his his sense that culture is something that. Um, he's excluded from mm-hmm. you know that it's something that he doesn't have access to that to express yourself is is to put yourself in danger yeah. i can i can recognize that feeling if even if my own experience my own background is slightly different so i i think there's a fundamental truth even if the biography is different mm-hmm. simply because you can't write things that you haven't thought or felt yeah. you know you have to transform them but they're, they're they usually have a root in experience um, as a fellow former theater students yeah well I'm just curious what was like your favorite role that you got to play well I used to uh, I was a professional actor for about eight years mm-hmm. and I my audition speech were, was Richard the mm-hmm. second and Richard the third and depending on how flamboyant and brave uh-huh. I was feeling I would either do now as the winter of our discontent or or Richard the second for yeah. God's sake us on the ground it was very hammy very bad I was very bad in all of those roles <laughs> But uh, especially my Richard III, that mm-hmm. really was a sight to see. But I, um, I never got to play those roles. <laughs> you know, I usually played sort of attendant lords. I played the guys in the background. Uh-huh. Uh, I played a lot of servants, mm-hmm. a lot of soldiers, yeah. a lot of non-speaking parts. I was at the National Theatre for a long time, and the best thing I got to do was uh, understudy the role of Constantine in The Seagull with Dame Judi Dench. Uh-huh. But I never actually got to play the part. I, I, the part I actually played on stage was a, was a servant. Uh-huh. And every night I'd come on with a broom and I'd sweep the stage and I'd nod at Dame Judi Dench and then I'd run off. But if something had ever happened to the guy playing Constantine, yeah. I would have played that role, a main role in Chekhov, opposite Judi Dench on the main stage of the National Theatre. And it never happened. Oh, <laughs> my heart is breaking a little bit for you. It's I spent 18 months waiting and I, the only time I got to perform it once was a full dress rehearsal to an empty auditorium. So, so I can say that, in all honesty, I have played Constantine on the main stage of the Olivier Theatre, but there was no one in the audience. But was Dame Judi Dench in <laughs> she that? She was. Oh, she came goodness. to see it, yeah. That is... 
she was very supportive and she tried to get me work but the problem that she faced was that I was a really fundamentally very bad actor <laughs> <laughs> so I never got the breaks um, I imagine growing up Shakespeare was kind of like an institutional part of your your upbringing yeah it sounds like well I mean I think uh, I, I vividly remember at 13 being shown a, a video of Ian McKellen playing Macbeth a very austere production of Macbeth a television production which I thought was amazing but I never went to the theatre mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't come from a kind of bookish intellectual middle class sure. family I the experience I had of Shakespeare was purely through film it was mm-hmm. Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet and um uh, Polanski's Macbeth and mm-hmm. the BBC TV productions. I didn't see Shakespeare on stage until my early 20s. Mm. Uh, and uh, I didn't appear in Shakespeare until I went to university. But but I've always loved him uh, you know, as a reader and as a film goer more than in the theatre, strangely. Yeah. I, I, whenever I do see a play, even if it's not a great, a great production, mm-hmm. I'm always blown away by the ideas yeah. and the language. And I always find myself coming home and looking up mm-hmm. passages just just in awe of, of the extraordinary insight, time, the timelessness of, of him. So I, I, he, I, he's definitely someone I revere. And, you know, I, I, well, a lot of what I write is romantic comedy. And for mm-hmm. me, the kind of ultimate all-time great romantic comedy is Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. And I think if I had to choose a favorite play, that would be my favorite Shakespeare. I mean, I, I've stolen so much <laughs> from that play. It's an homage. It's not stealing. It's an homage. Exactly. I mean, I think especially in this book, you know, even in the brightest, funniest Shakespeare comedy, there's always something in the fourth act that hints at tragedy, that Mm -hmm. could send things spinning off to a desperate place. And I think that's something I've tried to do in the novel. You know, just uh, a lot of it is about the comedy of putting on a play, the comedy of first love, the comedy Mm -hmm. of friendship. And then there's a sudden swerve into darkness Mm -hmm. that... um, that I think, I hope, steals something from the best of those yeah. plays. Uh, one of your previous very successful novels, Us, was a was more of a road trip. Yeah. Sprawling. I kind of, to me, it felt like environments were very much part of the story. Yeah. Uh, did this feel, did Writing Sweet Sorrow feel different? I don't want to say grounded, but did it feel different yeah. having it be in one specific place? I mean, talking about Us, for a moment, we, we've just filmed the TV series of Us. We've just filmed the BBC adaptation. So we've been in those places for yeah. real which has been really exciting. It's set all over Europe, so we've actually been on the road just as the characters were in the novel. This book, I I wanted to write a kind, again, stealing from Shakespeare, I wanted to write a kind of pastoral book, a book Mm -hmm. set in the English countryside. Not in an entirely picturesque way. The town that Charlie grows up in is is quite a kind of provincial, small-minded, quite ugly place, but the countryside around it, something happens when he leaves the town and goes into the country. And it's the first novel I've written that isn't urban, that Mm -hmm. isn't set in London or European city. And that's been lovely to write. I hope it has a kind of more lyrical, romantic quality because of that. I mentioned you're also a screenwriter. What feels different between the two, the screenwriting versus novel writing? I mean, I imagine they have to be like flexing different muscles. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 the novel is a fantastic medium to explore characters' inner lives, what they think and what they feel. You know, it's very natural as a novelist just to pause the action and, and explain to the reader what's, what, what's going on, either in the first person or third person. The screenplay is all about what people say and do, and you very rarely have direct access to what people are thinking. Uh, just as in life, we never say what we feel, we never say what we think, so characters in the screenplay rarely do. Mm-hmm. And when you adapt a book into a film, the first stuff that you cut is the, the observations, uh-huh. the internal monologues, the, 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 uh, 
the ironic self-reflection, all of that has to go. What you're left with is what people say and what they do. Uh-huh. And that's tough because you lose a lot of your best material yeah. instantly. But uh, the plus side, the great plus side, is you get to work with actors and directors. And they, they, you, they part of the thrill of transforming from one medium to the other is finding ways to trans- transfer that inner life into the objective third-person wor- third world of of a production. I was just going to say it has to be there's a lot of trust that goes into building a character that way because yeah. like you said you can talk about internal monologues you can talk about thought processes in a book but you just have to trust the actors yeah. to, to portray that it's the- Often an actor can do you know with a glance or a smile what you've spent three pages of prose <laughs> trying to capture and that's the hardest thing you know you when you when you hand in the screenplay it always feels bare it always feels like oh my god this is really underwritten we haven't got this and then the actors come on board and they say what am i trying to do here what do i really feel about this person what am i trying to i know i'm saying this but do i mean it and that's really exciting and that's the equivalent that's the nearest you get to the inner monologue really do you find yourself focusing on one or the other are you able to kind of work on an original novel and a screenplay at the same time. Like, I have to imagine they're yeah. so different. I can if it's an adaptation. I, I don't think I could work... I've written both original screenplays and adaptations. Mm-hmm. Recently, I've mainly been doing adaptations. I just spent a long time on the Edward St. Auburn Melrose novels, which I loved. But that was very, very different from my own voice and my own subject matter. So there's a certain distance, a certain objectivity. Yeah. Screenwriting is often described as a craft, and it, it does have that quality. It's... Yeah. Uh, it's it's technical, it's about architecture. Whereas even when you're not writing autobiographically, you are digging into yourself when you write a novel. And they're very different disciplines. When I'm writing a book, I can stop at lunchtime and move on to a screenplay because chances are I'm probably addressing notes. Yeah. I'm probably doing something that someone else has told me to do, <laughs> sometimes against my will. Uh-huh. And so there's a kind of feeling that you're gonna roll up your sleeves and you're gonna you know, hammer in these yeah. nails and paint over the joints and, and do the mechanics. So it's a different part of your brain. Really. I feel like there has to be a lot of humility to do that where you're writing an adaptation of your own work. Yeah. And then someone else tells you, no, no that like, one, that's not right. That won't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was a screenwriter before I was a novelist, mm-hmm. so I, I, it's come as less of a shock to me. But even so, I think that's why it's not always a good idea for writers to adapt their own work. Yeah. because because you always have this voice in your head that says, but hang on a second, I made this up, and this is my story. I know who these people are better than anyone in the world. Yeah. You can't tell me to cut this speech. You can't tell me to lose this scene. I, I know what it's doing. And you have to step away from that, and you have to have some humility and some objectivity, mm-hmm. and a recognition that they're very different mediums, and something that's hysterical on the page won't necessarily be so on the screen. And also, money is involved, and it's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> I, I, uh, we, we were speaking with, um, who was it? I think it was Harlan Coben. Yeah. And we, we did a live event with him, and he talked about one of the first, uh, one of the first scenes he wrote for his show was this, like, million-dollar scene. Oh, no, it was Michael Connelly. Michael yeah. was it for Bosch. And one of the first scenes they shot was this, like, million-dollar scene yeah. And they went up and they asked him, like, moving forward with your novels, we love your work, we love your adaptations. Can we have some more grounded yeah, places? Yeah, two-handers. Just to say, some, exactly, <laughs> two-handers, exactly. So people talk about, you know, such a major part of improving as a writer is being a reader. Yeah. But 
when it comes to screenplays, I mean, obviously you can watch shows and see how things yeah. are adapted, but do you have to... Are you finding screenplays to read to improve? Like, that's a unique... Uh, I used to when I was starting out. I used to read a lot of screenplays. I used to read the great screenwriters here. Yeah. Billy Wilder and Charles MacArthur and you know, people that, that were really masters of the craft because I think when I started I couldn't quite work out how creative, how entertaining, how detailed, uh, how descriptive you could be in a screenplay. And I think there's a difference between the screenplay as a functional instruction manual for people to make on set and a screenplay that you're trying to get going, a screenplay that you want to uh, you want people to read like a novel with the same kind of grip and entertainment. So certainly my first drafts, I try to make them a good read. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I know that I shouldn't really be saying what the actor's face is doing. I shouldn't really be saying too much about camera moves. I shouldn't be telling the director to do his job. You have to strike a balance between uh, making it fun and specific to read, but not doing the whole thing, allowing some air and some space for other people's creativities. And, and reading screenplays is a great way to do that. You know, if you sit down and read the screenplay of The Apartment, it's like a great novel. You yeah. just whiz through it. It's so entertaining. Oh, I love that book. That's such yeah. a great book. It's a great book. What, uh, how would you kind of classify yourself as a reader? When, I can't imagine you have much time to do anything, but when you yeah. do read, like what types of genres and books are you drawn to? I read pretty widely. When I'm writing a novel, I find I don't want to read anything that, that's something... I might want to write. Of course. You know, I don't want to write. I don't want to read. If I was reading, um, uh, when I was writing Sweet Sorrow, I didn't have a pile of, you know, coming of age first love stories. Sure. That said, I did draw on uh, my memories and my fondness for, for Salinger, for Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus, for Laurie Moore's brilliant comic writing. You know, there, there, there's a little, a kind of, um, there are a series of touchstones that you draw on, uh, but I don't read them at the same time. If I, I will read classics, I read a huge amount of uh, American writing uh, because I find that there's a, there's a sort of, a, the cultural difference means that I'm not too worried about mimicry. You yeah. know, I'm not, I, I can read Anne Tyler and know that I'm not gonna write an Anne Tyler novel, whereas if I'm reading a British writer who's writing social comedy, domestic yeah. lives, love stories, then I'm more likely to be swayed. So I read, I do read some fiction, but I, I'm, I'm careful to of course. keep away from anything that might contaminate. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> or anyone I might imitate too closely. Uh, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading Sweet Sorrow? I want a feeling of um, a sense of that, yes, that was, that's what it was like. You know, a sense of identification. I don't think all novels have to do that at all. But the nicest responses I've had to this book have been, oh my God, I remember how that felt. I remember those parties. I remember the first kiss. I remember the awkwardness of, of friendship at that age. I remember the growing gulf between children, my, you know, between myself and my parents. The people, um, even if they've had nothing like the experience that Charlie has, that there, there's a sense, a sort of emotional sense memory when they read the book. That's what I hope for. And that those have been the nicest responses to the books I've found. I also cool. want it to be really, really, really funny. I want people <laughs> to laugh out loud. I don't want people to smile. I mean, I really want people to laugh. Yeah. And, and, I, and I want people to be moved by it as well. That is perfect. David, thank you for joining me It's today. a pleasure. Very good to talk to you. Thank you. 
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.